Listener Production. Matthew McConaughey is an Academy Award-winning actor and one of Hollywood's most sought-after leading men. He is also a gentleman full of tenacity and deep wisdom. He has appeared in more than 40 feature films that have grossed more than $1 billion. His recent book, Green Lights, is an album and a record of his life. Matthew says this is not a traditional memoir or an advice book, but rather a playbook based on adventures in my life. Adventures that have been significant, enlightening and funny, sometimes because they were meant to be, but mostly because they didn't try to be. In this intimate conversation, Matthew and I traverse the moral and spiritual convictions that have driven him, what it means to be human and the importance of grace. Like at that moment, I got that role. I found myself instinctively doing this, feeling the power that comes with the humility of going, part of this is fate, part of this has been written. Thank you for writing this for me. Yes, I did things and I was responsible for making it happen, but I know this script has been written before I had my hands on the wheel, but it's only written because I had my hands on the wheel. So where those two, fate and responsibility, play, it was a thank you to the fate part of uh, yeah, man, I just got graced again. I got graced. Thank you. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is a life of greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Matthew McConaughey is a father and a husband and one of the wisest people I have ever met. In this episode, you will learn why we all hold the power to lead the most miraculous life. I want to start by saying what an amazing book Green Lights is. It's funny. It had me crying. It's absolutely beautiful and it's full of wisdom, packed with all of your thoughts and your, you share your truths. But what I want to know is what made you want to write a diary for all those years? Yeah. Well, I mean, I first started off at 14 writing in a diary slash journal for the same reasons that most young people go to, to a diary. It was to deal with the clumsiness of growing up. Oh, why did Gretchen Donnelly break up with me? My heart's broken. Why do I have pimples on my face? Uh, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But then in my early 20s, I noticed um, that I was in a time in my life where I was catching green lights, meaning my relationships were good. I was My school grades were good. I had a job with cash in my pocket. Uh, I had a girlfriend. Uh, I was I was like, it was an affluent time for me. And I remember going, hey, you're not writing in your diary as much while you're, quote unquote, succeeding. And I remember saying, I think you better keep writing in it now because it may help you out later on when you get in your next rut, which it did. So I continued to write about successes. I mean, we're so often told to dissect our failures. And I was like, no, we need to make sure we dissect our successes mm. because later on in life, when I got in a rut, which we all eventually do again, I was able to go back to my diary and go, what were your habits when you were rolling? When you had found your frequency, when you were when you were happy and you would look forward to the morning when you woke up, you look forward to the day. And I look back and I said, who were you hanging out with? Where were you going? How much sleep were you getting? What were you drinking? What were you eating? What was your outlook? How was your sense of humor? Did you have your wink? You know, whatever those things were. And I found habits that helped me recalibrate um, and get back on back in line in times when I was in a rut from those times where I'd written when I was feeling satisfied with myself. What were the habits that you found when you look back in your diary? Um, getting enough sleep was one that was yes. consistent um, for sure. And that's still true for me today. Um, my least favorite feeling is the being tired from not enough sleep. Mm. I, have, I have no trouble, no trouble with like fatigue from exercise or hard work, but boy, not having enough sleep. As my wife says, no, honey, you stay in bed. I'll get the kids breakfast because I'd rather get up early with them and lose sleep than be around you when you haven't had enough. Yes. Um, that was one. Um, you know, um, um, exercise. Mm. An hour a day to find a place to break a sweat. And I just call it break a sweat because that can be a run. That can be a workout. That can be dancing with my wife late yeah. at night. Whatever that is. Um, also 
end of the night, doing a little inventory before I shut my eyes up through my day. And it can be hard when you're busy to remember what the hell you had for breakfast, much less lunch, but to go back and do a little inventory in the day. And then secondly, to do a little inventory on what you got coming up tomorrow. Yeah. Like I love writing lists. I'll write a little list and, and I'll notice that if I have 10 things to do today, but if I don't have them written down and I know they're in like 10 separate emails, I feel a little scattered. Like I feel intimidated by them. But if I write them down, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, on one page in front of me, they look a lot less mm-hmm. formidable. <laughs> and it's a lot easier to just go, yep, did that one, mark it off. Yep, did that one, mark it off. So those are a few things that, that, that helped me along the way. When you look back at what you did in the day and the things that maybe you achieved or the conversations you had with people, do you look back and digest them in a way of, I could have done this better or I did that well? You know, when I went back, I thought I would have more of that feeling when I went back to go write this book and look at those diaries. I really thought I was going to be much more judgmental Mm. of myself. I, I knew I'd have some embarrassment. I knew I'd have some shame. I did. But most of the stuff that I was thought I'd be embarrassed about, I ended up laughing at. Hmm. Most of the stuff I thought I'd be ashamed of, I was like, oh, you already forgave yourself for that and moved on. Um, so I laughed more than I thought I would. Um, and I really didn't judge myself because what happens through the book, and that's hence the title of Green Lights and now all yellow and reds eventually turn green, is that the times where I did, I did step in shit, the times where I put my foot in my mouth, the times where I was not my best, where I, or, or I maybe hurt somebody with my words or burned a bridge, they or embarrassed myself by not being prepared for work. They taught me lessons. Now, mm. some of them I noticed at the time. Some of them I noticed five years later. Sometimes I noticed 10 years later. Some I still haven't noticed what the green light assets of those times were. But they I found this, too. I've. Most of the time, I'm the last one to forgive me for my wrongdoings. Yes. And when I finally go to someone to try to make amends, go, you know what? This has been bugging me. They had already forgiven me. I think that's the thing. We're our, we're our harshest critics sometimes. And it's the same way as when you're angry or you're, you know, you don't forgive someone for something that they've done. It's only you who puts yourself in jail, not the other person. They've moved on. And it, and it adds up, you know, and if you don't make amends with yourself or with the other person soon enough, it'll come bubbling over later somewhere down the line. Yes. In a very awkward way, usually in a way that you will regret, you know, so... I have through the book many times where I've gone off on my own and with a backpack, just where I was stuck with myself to work some things out. And as I write about in the book, I, I, do, I do not always enjoy the company with myself. And I've, I've learned, though, that when we are in places where we're not enjoying our company, our own company, that's probably a good reason why you, we maybe need to stay in our own company with no one else around for a little bit mm. longer. Or not, you know, um, we don't enjoy our company. We're feeling restless. We want to pick up the phone and call a friend that can make us feel better. We want to put on the tube. We want to go to the bottle a little bit earlier in the day. All kinds of things we do. But I found that if we could stick with it on our own and not pull the parachute to go have those those things, to have it easier out, that we do press reset. And we find out, what hey, what do I forgive myself for? And what do I put my foot down and say, I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm changing this about yes. myself. You say you're an optimist by nature and humour has been one of your greatest teachers. It has helped you deal with pain, loss and lack of trust. When did you know that humour was your friend? Oh, I get reminded, you know, it's one of those things you talk about. What are those habits when I was feeling satisfied in life or when we feel successful that I wrote in my diary, for instance, that helped me recalibrate in times when I was in a rut? Um, How... Uh, when I'm in a rut, I'll take more things personally. Yeah. I'll let someone else's approval really give me a sense of significance or someone else's anger or disapproval really bring me down. And when I'm, I've got a sense of humor, as I say, in the book, when I got my wink back, <laughs> I'm just kind of, it's life's more of a dance and I don't, I'm not taking things near as seriously. I'm giving things just as much credit. I think actually more realistic credit when I've got sense of humor. You know, sense of humor, we always like to think, we tend to think that sense of humor denies the crisis or yes. denies the problem. Where in fact, I think it exposes it and actually can untie the knot between two people um, to actually move forward and solve the problem. We were talking about uh, uh, America right now. Mm. America, and I, and I say, look, hey, 
If you don't know what you what to say or how you feel about something, please make sense of humor your default emotion. We'd all get along a lot better. I don't say that in the in the, in the jest of oh deny our differences. No, no, no. I'm not say that in just, oh, deny there's a problem. No, we can still solve the problem, but in a much more human way. Sometimes we go, geez, oh man, here we go. All right, buddy, let's talk it out. That doesn't deny the problem, but it did untie a knot to allow us to go, okay, we're going to engage and have a better listen. It's it's very true. And green lights is absolutely hysterical in so many, so many parts. You grew up the youngest brother of three and the son of parents who you say were twice divorced and thrice married to each other. How was life as a child in the McConaughey family? I remember it very fondly. You know, I tell a lot of stories of how we were disciplined. And I've always, long before this book, when people talk about the love story of my family growing up, I always tell the stories of discipline. And those stories are quite violent. And they're like, why do you tell those as the love stories? And I think it's because those were the times where the love we had in our family seemed like they were going to be tested. Like that love was really going to be tested and it might break it. Meaning like if the love would have lost, my parents would have been twice married, thrice divorced. But no, they were twice divorced, thrice married. The love won. Um, So I tell those stories because that's when the love was tested. That's when the commitment, unconditional commitment we had to each other as a family, as family members was tested the most, but never had a chance of being broken. Mm. And I think there's an honor that I have in that because there's 98 percent of the time. Look, my mother said it when she read the book. She was like, this is stories are all true. But I do wish you would have included a few more of the stories of when we all got along (laughs) and it was we were kind of a kumbaya. I was like, I know. But and I told her, you know, that why I tell those stories and she understood um, and, and appreciated that fact. Um, but no, I didn't take for granted the 98% of the time when we were a warm, loving, hugging, supportive family. Um, and it, my parents were, my brothers were with me throughout my growing up. I mean, it's undeniable in the story, in the book, how the love that you have for your mother and father, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. You do tell a story and I, I actually found it quite disturbing for me and thinking, of you as a young boy witnessing this when you tell the story about how your parents have that fight over the dinner table, your mum's calling your dad names and, you know, she ends up getting a knife out calling 911 and it, it, I imagined you as a child watching that and I thought, how, how did you process that and then, then still have such a huge love for your parents and then, then everything with them seemed completely fine? Well... Look, it was horrific theater to my young eyes. But part of what my family has always done and what I saw my mom and dad do much more often than seeing a horrific or violent event like they had in that fight was you moved on. Meaning that bloody fight ended up with them making love on the kitchen floor. Once again, the love won. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, Now, that's when I left the room, but there was there was no objectivity, meaning like there was nothing in my parents that said like. The next day, hey, I want to talk to you about what you saw last night. We moved on. Mom and dad were great. We were great. And these so we did we're you were not allowed to hold a grudge in our family. And I saw my mom and dad not hold grudges against Mm. each other. I saw that although my dad was 6'4", 260, and mom was 5'4", 100, mom's the one that needed that fight. She's the one that started it. Yes, she started it. She always started it. And to this day at 88, she'll say, yeah, that's what I needed to communicate. Yeah. Whoa. Well, I don't, you know, it didn't make me, so I've, I've questioned myself. Did that make me want to be more of a pacifist in my life? To sort of say, I don't want to do that? Not that I notice, but I am much more passive. Yeah. I don't even like having to raise my voice in my household. And if I do that, I I immediately check in and go, whoa, what did you not handle to get to this point that you had to raise your voice, Matthew? You know, so and I'm human and I do, but I, I my, you know, raising your voice to my mom and dad was in their relationship part of the nightly conversation. Mm. You know, it's just how they talked, you know, and that was no big deal at all. Um, but my parents just moved on, you know, resilience 
was in, integral in all of the lessons that I that they taught us and just what I saw. So again, the love and the good times always just so outweighed those times that I never really got hung up on that. There's a beautiful story you tell about your dad. I mean, you speak about him as being, like you said, this big, strong guy and he's all about rites of passage and there's stories with your brother and, and yourself. But then there's this story about him giving mouth to mouth to a cockatiel that was his right-hand man who was always on his shoulder yeah. and all this stuff and you you walk in walk into the caravan and the cockatiel is is what you think is dead in the toilet. And then tell us what 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 exactly he does. It was a beautiful story. Yeah, it was beautiful. He, he uh, the cockatiel had gotten loose. We let him fly around in, inside that the the caravan when we were gone. We got home this day and the cockatiel was always there to greet my dad. Talk to my dad, hop on his shoulder. Well, my dad and I made dinner and everything. And this night we couldn't find him. So I run on one end of the caravan, look, and he don't find him. And then I hear my dad in the back going, oh, no, 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 no. And I run back there and there's dad on his knees over the toilet. And in the bottom of the toilet circling is this dead soaked cockatiel, lifeless. Dad starts immediately just weeping tears and reaches in with his big hands and pulls this cockatiel out. And with tears coming down his face, he cradles this cockatiel in his hand, hold him around the chest and just put the cockatiel's head and breast uh, down to his midsection in his mouth and starts going. And I remember he was giving these just, just, Oh, like keeping his mouth, you know, if his mouth would have been too tight on the cockatiel, he could have blown up the cockatiel's lungs. Yeah. If he had breathed too hard, he could have been, he could, it wouldn't have worked. But he, he allowed enough air to come out and gave just the right amount of warmth breath, one, and tears are just streaming down on him. And he's, two. And he's weeping, four. And after about the fifth or sixth one, in his hand, he saw this little, this little like small flutter. And he's sitting there crying again. Another little feather flutter. Again, now dad's starting to go, getting happy like babies bring him back to life. And all of a sudden, in his mouth, heard the chirp in my dad's mouth. Oh my God. Dad goes one more and pulls him off. And this little bird sugar shakes this toilet water. My dad slobber off his head and looks around. And damn if he wasn't back to life. And dad sat there and he fluttered in his hand. He sat there and cradled him and got the hair dryer out on light and, and cried over him and dried him off. And Cockatiel's name was Lucky. Lucky lived another eight years. Wow. It was beautiful. And I just witnessed that. What a beautiful story. And there's, there is so much beauty between your mother and your father and the relationship that you have with them. I want to talk about this concept now of green lights, which is obviously the main theme of your book. You say catching green lights is also about timing, the world's timing and ours. When we're in the zone on the frequency and with the flow, we can catch green lights by sheer luck because we are in the right place at the right time. Catching more of them in our future can be about intuition, karma and fortune. Sometimes catching green lights is about fate. When did you discover this whole concept of green lights? Well, I, I discovered it when I was going through, when I took all my diaries away and journals to look to the desert to see what I had. There are thousands of pages. And what I first came up with when I was looking for sort of a synchronicity of what kind of columns or categories did all my stories fall into? It was a big stack of stories, a big stack about people, big stack about places, a big stack of prescribes or prescriptions or advice, wisdom. There was a big stack of uh, poems, a big stack of prayers, and a big stack of bumper stickers. So those were my seven categories. And then I said, well, let me see if there's a central theme that comes out of these. And so I just, and all of a sudden I started noticing, oh, this is about green lights. Even your red and yellow lights, the hard times in your life taught you lessons that gave you assets, green light assets that gave you more freedom in your future. Oh, there were some green lights that just fell in your lap. You were in the right place at the right time, but oh, you actually did something with that. Mm. You turned that green that you saw it as, as a gift and you, and you took advantage of it and created a future where you were able to be more yourself and have more ease 
all the way down to basic ones. The most basic, I love to tell everyone, they're like, when they don't get the, totally the concept, I'm like, putting your coffee in your coffee filter the night before mm. is, t- is giving yourself a green light the next morning. Yeah. You know, so it's teeing yourself up for more ease in your future. When do we, what did I also notice? Times in my life where I lied, cheated, and stole. And maybe screw people over. Maybe at the time that felt like a green light because it was the easier way to go or, you know, breaking up with somebody over a, you know, a letter or an email instead of having the courage to go do it in person. And maybe that was easier at the time. Maybe it was an immediate green light for me, but not truly a green light because mm-hmm. later on I've got to look over my shoulder wherever I'm going to see if that person's there that I lied, cheated and stole from. So now I'm the decision I made in the past is trespassing on my freedom in the future. So it's not really a green light yeah. choice back then, was it? So green lights are about responsibility and freedom, how we are responsible for our freedom. And now there's great freedom in our responsibilities for ourselves. Um, and it is the first part of that. It is about fate. It's also about responsibility. That's yes. sort of uh, the, the, the play on those two. We can engineer them in our lives ourselves by the choices we make. Also, though, it is about intuition. Are we in a place where we can see it? Green lights are all around us. Yes. Gifts and truth bombs are everywhere around you and I right now. Are we in a place to receive them? Not usually. And do we receive them when we're looking for them? No. (laughs) We receive them when we're in this place to just go, hey, I'm here. I'm not not trying to be anybody else. I'm going to listen. And all of a sudden they land. And like a little butterfly, a little angel of truth lands on you like, ooh, that's for me. That's true. Mm. And then we have to be patient to try and understand what it is, personalize it to see why it's for us, and then hopefully have the courage to take it back into life and say, I'm going to live by this. I'm going to apply this truth I just learned in my life. And that's the hard part. Yes. Because you come back into into the, the wild, bustling rodeo of the world we live in, and slowly those truths start to get stripped from us Mm. a little bit. And so we have to work on daily maintaining them. But yeah, sometimes they're about responsibility. Sometimes they're about fate. And those two also, fate and responsibility and freedom and responsibility is to me, I believe, more of a dance than a contradiction. I believe it's a dance as well. And this concept kind of came up a bit in your book. I feel like when we don't push too much and we, we allow life to flow and we take our hands off the steering wheel and once we do that all that dance becomes oh so graceful. Yes, but would you agree, and you tell me what your opinion on this. For me, my theory on that is conservative early, liberal late, and I don't mean political terms. What I mean is conservative part is self-determination. Yes. Hands on the wheel, what are the rules? I'm creating my life. I'm, 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 I'm going to create my weather so I can then take my hands off and blow in the wind. 100% Meaning, agree. I like to write... I've gotten a lot of green lights in my life by writing the headline first and then writing the story to go to the headline. Or, you know, so, but then the headline's always different once I get there, but it's generally the same mm. area and same sort of headline. So I think it's, again, it's a mix. And that seems to be the art of living is when do we go? I know what I want. I'm aiming at it and I'm going for it. Yes. I will, I'm aiming at the bullseye. I'll shoot the arrow. And when do we go? No, the arrow, the target actually draws the arrow. Let me sit back like a spider and let it come to me. That's how I found Camilla. I quit looking for the mm. one. And once I said, I'm okay if I'm an 88 year old bachelor, just be, let me be myself. That's when the woman for me walked into my life. Do you think there's been times in your life where you've pushed too much and it hasn't quite worked out the way you wanted? Sure. Geez, let me think of some. I know there have, I mean, Look, I have one of the things I found in going back in my journals is I was like, ah, you're going to there were times where I was like, read some of the stuff I'd write. And I was like, oh, you're such an arrogant prick. You <laughs> I didn't just, find that Mr. when know I read it the all. book. Mr. I'm going to. Well, but but here's what I found. Is that those times when I was such a force of will and a Mr. Know-it-all and an arrogant prick, as I call it. I'm now thankful for those times because. I, well, even if it was arrogance, it gave me the confidence to put myself in the ring, yes. to put myself in a situation where I then learned, oh shit, I don't know what I knew. Oh, I just ate. Oh, I just stepped in shit. Oh, oh, I'm not in control. Oh, I was wrong. You know? So, but I, I don't, if I wouldn't have been the arrogant prick, I wouldn't have had the confidence to put myself in the position of going, I know. Yeah. 
and I'm going to make this happen because this is what I want to happen. You know, so I'm thankful for those times as, as well. Yes, that's so interesting. When did you decide or why did you decide you wanted to be this lawyer and then you decided that you didn't want to be a lawyer anymore, you wanted to tell stories, you wanted to be a filmmaker? So I had always grown up believing I was going to be a lawyer. My family thought I should be a lawyer since I was very, very young. I was very good at debates. I could hold an argument. I even won a lot of them in my household and and that was the idea I was going to be a lawyer. And I wanted to be a criminal defense attorney. Well, right at the end of my sophomore year at college, I was not sleeping well with the idea of, oh, you finish school here, you go to law school for four years, then you do this. You won't be actually practicing law until your 30s. Yeah. And I was like, I don't really want to spend my all of my 20s just learning. And I had been writing a lot at that time. And I had been sharing some short stories with a friend who had read them and thought they were pretty good. And it also said to me, hey, you know, think about in front of the camera. You got good character, McConaughey, you know, maybe try that. And that part, I was like, ah, no, 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 no. You know, couldn't even kind of fathom that. But the storytelling aspect, I was like, that that sounds like that's for me. So I, a book found me, the greatest salesman in the world. And I don't know if you've had this in your life. Some, you know, it's different when someone tells us what to do or a teacher tells yes. us, oh, you should read this. Or a friend goes, you've got to read this book or you've got to see this movie. It's like, but if we find it on our own, like those albums that mm. would, you know, come up through our, and we like, I'm going to check. And you go, oh, and you tell people about it. And they're like, I've never heard of them. It's kind of like, you found it. It found you. Yes. Well, this book found me. Mm. And when I read it, I was like, okay, this is a sign. No one pushed this book on me. I'm not a big reader anyway. Let me read it. And it gave me the courage because I had identity and found purpose in it to say, I want to go to film school. I'm going to change my course schedule. I'm going to call mom and dad and tell them I want to do it, which was a daunting idea because mm. I grew up in a blue collar family. The idea of going into the arts, what the hell is that? So avant-garde, European, what are you doing? So it's such a hippie idea. You know what I mean? It's like, yes. that, I did not think it was going to go over well, but I called my dad one night to tell him. 7.30 at night, I said, I'll call him at 7.30. He'll have gotten home from work, taken a shower, had a meal with mom. He'll be sitting on the couch. He's having a beer. He'll be in a great mood. Great time to tell him that you don't want to go to film school anymore. You want to go to, you, you don't want to go to law school anymore. You want to go to film school. I call him 7.36 p.m. Hey, Pop. He says, hey, what you got, little buddy? I said, Dad, I got to talk to you about something. He says, sure. I said, I don't want to go to law school anymore. I want to go to film school. Now I'm breaking a sweat on the other end of the line. <laughs> wait, waiting to hear him go, you want to what? Mind you, he's paying for my school. He says, no. Are you sure that's what you want to do? I said, yes, sir. And then there was a pause for five seconds. And I'm over here going, oh. And he said three of the greatest words I could have ever heard. Don't half-ass it. Mm. It was a gift. He gave me more than approval. Yes. You know, he gave me privilege and freedom and responsibility to go do it. And, you know, I think that it happens with a lot of parents. And it's actually how I think even governments are sort of formed. You put a structure, an expectation upon our children mm. and upon people of, of, of a country or a place. And you would say, follow these rules. This is what you're going to do. But in the back of the hierarchy's mind, when the individual in business, a Steve Jobs or something comes up and goes, no, I'm doing this. So you can't do that. And like, no, I'm doing it. Our parents, when, when the child comes forward and goes, I'm not doing what y'all expect me to do. I'm going my own way. I, I could hear the pride in that 10 second phone call of my dad. Yes. Underneath it without saying it. Yes, son. You've just chosen to go your own way. You broke the mold Aww. and chose to do or choosing to do something that we've never even entertained or brought up. Yes, that's what it's about. And I, and, I, and I think my dad had great honor in hearing his son sort of have a rebellion against what, he, what I was expected to do. And I think society does that to us as well. The thing I think we have to learn is when we do step out to go, I'm going a different way, we better mean it. Yeah, Because <laughs> you get one chance, you know what I mean? If you're bluffing, you're, you're going to be put back in the structure, you know? There's something beautiful, though, about having the courage to be able to take that step. And... There is something in always seeking that approval from our parents as well. And sometimes I think, why do we need that? Even as we're older, I mean, 
do you find that now, I know your mum's around 88, that you, you do want her to be happy with what you choose to do in your life? I, I do. But I also... How old are your parents? They are late 60s. Okay, so are you noticing that you're starting to become the parent? Yes. Yeah, and so, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm the parent to to my mom. Yeah. Now, she has sneaky, quiet wisdom that I think that she may have forgotten in her old days that she hasn't forgotten at all, and she'll let me know really sharply. But she's more of a revolutionary than I am now. Yeah. It's like parents, you know, it's like in our 20s, we're revolutionaries. 30s, we start to kind of maybe go, oh, you know what? Mom and dad taught us might make some sense. 40s, we practice it. And 50s, we continue. But around 60, our parents become revolutionaries again. And maybe it's something about knowing that, well, they're going to die sooner. So who gives a damn? Yeah. Consider what? Yeah, hey, consider this. I'm doing what I want to do. You know, and I mean, my mom pulls off stuff now that I'm like, well, I know I get it. That isn't what you taught us to do. But hey, you go for it. It works for you and you have no regrets. Um so, yeah, I mean, I do want my approval of mom, but she's already at a time now where, look, she forgives everybody and herself, especially quicker than anybody I know. It's all like, well, well it doesn't matter. I mean, you're, you're essentially who you are. She, she actually, to this day, still will challenge me to take more risks, meaning I'll, she's less surprised when I pull off some things than I am. She's like, well, yeah, of course. Yeah. And you should, you should take more risk. You should, you should do that. Yeah. You want to, you want to be, you know, if I hopped up today and said, I'm going to go, you know, uh, be a rock and roller. She'd be like, great idea. What have what you been waiting on? You know, that would be her. And I'd be like, Oh, I thought you were going <laughs> to, what does that make sense? She'd be like, go. And what, what do you, don't even ask permission. Just go do it. So she's already very pleased. And I think, if, if, you know, she sees who I've become. You read the story in there about, when, you know, Camilla and I, Camilla getting pregnant before yes, our marriage. Yes. <laughs> that did not go over well. No. That did not go over well. So, you know, they've even taken. But she called you, hung up, and then called you back straight away. She she cussed us out going, oh, we're on speakerphone. Oh, my gosh, this is horrible. This is not good news. It's out of order. I taught you to get married before you have it. Oh, no, no, no. And we're like, oh, my gosh, my mom is not. A-. She hangs up. And Camilla and I are like. What the hell was that? And all of a sudden the phone rings again. Pick it up. She goes, I'm on speakerphone. I said, yeah, I'm on speaker. She goes, I'd like to put some white out over that last conversation. Uh, I I noticed that uh, I was being selfish. And although I may not agree with it, it's not my place. If you all are happy, then I'm happy. So that's, you know, again, just pick up. If you got a problem or something, call back. Go up. Didn't mean. So we're, we're, my whole family's a walking contradiction for sure. There's a beautiful story that you tell in the book and it's when you when you score your first big role in A Time to Kill and you say that Joel Schumacher and, and John Grisham call you to tell you that you got this lead role that you really wanted. The bit that really stood out to me is like, you, you know, you started running and then I think you're in a forest and then you drop to your knees with tears in your eyes and... You faced the full moon and you said thank you. Who did you say thank you to? God. Mm. Life. It's important, isn't it? The universe. The, you know, my relationship with uh, God, and, and I do say I'm religious. Now, mind you, people today, it's more apropos for people to go, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. I would like to go on record to reminding everyone that actually the Latin root of religion comes from the word re, legare, and legare means to bind together, re means again. So in that real essence definition of religion, it sounds like we could all use some religion right now Mm. (laughs) to bind together again. Um, But in the times, you know, where I, like at that moment, I got that role. I felt on top of the world. I felt like I was the most important at that moment. The world felt like it was revolving around me. In that sense of power and excitement and confidence that I had, I also have tried to practice and found myself instinctively doing this, feeling the power that comes with the humility of going, ah, that's, that, 
this isn't all on me. Yeah. This is back to that fate you're talking about. Part of this is fate. Part of this has been written. Thank you for writing this for me. Yes, I did things and I was responsible for making it happen. But I, I know this is this script has been written before I had my hands on the wheel. But it's only written because I had my hands on the wheel. So where those two fate and responsibility play, it was a thank you to the fate part of uh, yeah, man, I just got graced again. I got graced. Thank you. They're glorious moments, aren't they? And I've had them in my life. And I've, this is why it resonated so much with me because I've, I've stopped and I've cried. And, you know, I, you know that it's bigger than you. You know that this just didn't happen. It was, I, I mean, I don't believe in coincidences and luck. I believe right. that, that we're all part of something bigger and you can turn left or right. Lessons will be learnt, but we'll eventually get there in the end. And when we have those glorious moments, oh, they are just so magical. Yeah. And, you know, I always, when I'm feeling either stressed or maybe my ego is getting too big and I'm really am thinking like I've got the strings <laughs> to the puppeteering act, you know, I try to. I go in that, I call it the, the Google Maps eye. I'll go into the Google eye in the sky and look back at the earth and see this turning planet and these glowing continents and find my place on it. This little bitty dot right now. And then go, oh, you've been here 50 years. Who knows how long you'll be here. But even if you make it to 100, in the hands of time, that's this little bitty bit of time that has been and that will be. And in that feeling of, oh, look how insignificant mm. I am, is when, in that humility of that feeling, is when I feel so doggone empowered. Yes. That in those times when we go, oh, none of it matters, is exactly when we realize, oh, all of it matters. And don't you look back at the most challenging moments you've had in your life where you say, woe is me, why was that happening? And now, when you're in that moment of grace, you would not change those moments at all. 100%. 100%. I get asked that all the time. What would you go back and change? I was like, look, number one, that's not my story to tell. And I'm not going to dare be arrogant enough to think I should go back because those red and yellow lights, those hardships, those crises I've had have helped me be who I am today. Yeah. And you know, I just, you look back at our life from every moment, from this exact moment back. Well, if we can connect the dots, it all adds up. It's a science looking back. It's a mystery going forward. Yes. You know, and that's in that place of where do we have the hands on the wheel and where has it been written? They, I'm not sure which comes first, but they are right. They're running neck and neck, you know. Um, so, no, I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, and for things maybe that I would want to change or things that I haven't learned those lessons yet, I trust that, well, I'm going to. Yes. In this life or the next. Or if I don't, my great, great grandkids We'll learn that lesson mm. from my own crisis or hardship, the lesson I don't learn this time. You tell a really beautiful story about after, you know, you, you hit fame in A Time to Kill and you went to seek some spiritual realignment in the mon at the Monastery of Christ and you met this beautiful brother called Christian and you guys went out for a big walk and, you, you know, start telling him everything that was on your mind and you walk for hours and hours and the guy hasn't said one word. You're crying <laughs> And then you stop, you sit down and you'll wait for him to say something to you. And he just says two words. He says, me too. Yeah. Oh, it was beautiful. Like my dad saying, don't half-ass it. Those two words that that man, Brother Christian, said to me at that moment, I, 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 I crumbled in, in, in forgiveness. I crumbled in grace. I crumbled in knowing, realizing that it's a human condition that we're all in this thing together, that it wasn't my own personal, original and soul <laughs> uh, challenge that I was going through. And, and I write this in the book. Sometimes we don't want to hear advice. Yes. Sometimes we just need to be let know that, hey, I hear you. Me too. What is it about how sometimes we just need to talk? We don't even need the person to speak. Yeah. Well, you know, that's one of the advantages of keeping a diary or a journal. Yeah. It's a, it's, you know, we have Socratic dialogue. I talk to myself all the time. I just do my best to answer. Um, but even that can be helpful. But to write the written word down 
it, it, it makes the thought, it puts it in a, in a form of matter. It's like, it's, it's, it's an object now. It's re, it's legible. Mm. It's written down. It's not, it's, you've, it's tangible. And that is already throwing it out there and making it at least a Socratic dialogue between you and yourself, but also in a written word, um, which is like talking to someone else and someone else that by writing troubles down is a form of sharing them. Yes. Even though no one else but yourself is looking at them. It already removes it and unties the knot a little bit and allows a little circulation to come in and go, okay, all right. So it's not just me that has a problem. Cause look, I just wrote it on paper. The paper's got it too. I mean, it's out there mm. in the world now. And that's similar to when you go talk to somebody. There's a great African proverb. Um, a man who shares his problems will have few. A man who doesn't will have many. Yeah, I love um, that. Most of that's just sharing it. And you, again, you think it's so original and that someone's gonna go, wow, I've never even thought of that. <laughs> They never do that. They'll go, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And you're like, you do? Oh, great. Thank you. <laughs> you know, just let us know we're all, there's a collective existence mm. we have. I noticed in the book that you obviously write about how you won an Academy Award for Dallas Buyers Club, and that's a, it's a huge moment. But you didn't write about it at length compared to some other stories in the book. Why was that? Well, as you know through the book, I don't, write much about perceived destinations or landing spots. I never saw winning an Academy Award as a ta-da moment. I didn't feel like, ah, you've arrived. Ah, you did it. I did have a sense of accomplishment that my peers had looked at my work, that, that my work, my craft had translated in such a way that they said, we deem this the most excellent work by a male lead actor this year. That felt great, that my work had translated, that it was a craft, that I was an artist, that what I wanted to do, I did, and it was relatable and translated and moved people. But I never saw it as as like, okay, ding, check that one, did it. Um, So I think, you know, I think I'm, I mean, my guess is that I'm pretty consistent. You tell me, I think I'm pretty consistent through the book of not really, I don't spend too much time on arrivals no. or destinations or when I won the trophy. Uh, what, 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 what's beautiful to me and my favorite parts is the approach yes. and the exits. It's, it's the, it's the, it's, it's the, that's where life's a verb. Winning the trophy was a noun, did it. It's in the history books. For that year, 2014, I think it was, there's one male lead Academy Award winner, Matthew McConaughey for Dallas Buyers Club. That's, a, that's fact. That's written in stone. It'll, that fact that I'll live me. But the fun, the verb of life, when mm. you see someone feel and strangle and try to find their balance when they're unbound, that's what's beautiful is the overcoming or the getting of what we want, uh, going towards it. Find that relationships as well. You know, I don't, you know, I don't want to feel in a relationship. It's one of my fear, one of my earlier sort of adolescent fears of marriage. Oh my gosh, is the chase over? Is the adventure over? And now I had to learn and be convinced that no, the adventure is just beginning. You're just going, going you've got a partner with you now. Yes. And adventures actually become two and threefold. And that's been the case so far, thankfully, in my life with Camille and I. But the, okay, we're good now. I know everything about you. You know everything about me. Ho-hum. Oh, geez. The adventure's over. Where's the fun? Yeah. So I like talking about the approaches, uh, the mm. how, the how I got there, the what I, the how I figured out what, and then what I, what I did with it afterwards. How was that moment when you won the Academy Award and you were standing on stage? How did you feel? I felt somewhat omnipresent. <laughs> um I would not call it surreal because I was, I didn't have a speech written. Really? I thought that speech was written. It was so beautiful. No, I didn't have that speech written. Um, I had an idea of what I wanted to talk about if they called my name and then they did. And then it was purely just coming straight from my heart and spirit, Mm. you know, um, it was like, it was, yeah, maybe it was, maybe there's that great quote in the Bible, Matthew 10, 20, actually mm-hmm. the day this, the green lights came out, the, it's, it won't be my words, it'll be my father's words. I was in, I was in 
full of gratitude. Yes. Um, I was confident enough to share a truth of mine that, that I knew that it could be misinterpreted. Like who's my hero, me in 10 years, but then tomorrow my hero will be me 10 years from that day. And a year from now it'll be me 10 years after that. So to, I actually never will catch him. Yeah. That's the verb. That's the verb. If I can stay on the chase, you know, chasing yet, which is what I think we all are somewhat doing. Um, and knowing that we never arrive again, there's not the ta-da moment. Even if you look at our in countries, we talked about America but offline before we got on here. America is an aspiration. We are constantly chasing, yet we are not going to have a utopia. We're not going to find perfect justice. But if we can keep chasing and get a little bit better and have a bit of ascension in life, a bit of evolution and get a little bit better, that's as good as it gets. Mm. And so that's what, I mean, at that point, I was talking about what a chase, what I looked up to, uh, what I looked forward to. I found that to be in all my travels around the world. The one common denominator is that for happiness is that people just need something to look forward to. They need to have some reason to wake up in the morning, no matter how minuscule it is, a little bit of purpose. I agree. And you talk a lot about prayer in the book. And I think that's so unbelievably important. I use it a lot in my life. What is your favorite prayer? My favorite prayer is when I can clearly see, like for instance, on Sundays at church, I'll pray. And I will go back to the previous Sunday and go through the Rolodex of my mind of snapshots of me through the week, how I got to this moment. And I'll try to see the moments. Maybe it'll be a flash of, me when I was doing something with the kids or flash I did something work or a flash when I got a call something something that I, I I did that I was it was my truest self and I'll see a snapshot of it. Then I'll go through sort of let let constantly come to my mind pictures of those people I love in my life. And I go through the Rolodex of them until I find a snapshot of them when they're in their most true moment. Not their happiest, hey, you know, not that, not trying, no attitude, no mm. nothing. Just when they're in their most true being. And I go through everybody until I find a picture in my mind that can stop on a picture of them in that in that place. And I pray that that part of them can become omnipresent, that that part will flourish, that they will realize that part and that's who they are and that they can water that garden, that part of the garden in themselves. So they can be more of that. And then I end up, I always stop ending back up with a snapshot of myself. And that can be sometimes the hardest one for me to find. Yeah. The one where I see myself in my most true moment and go, that's it. More of that. I wish and pray more of that for you, Matthew, is what I'll say in my mind. And then um, that's usually when I open my eyes back up and, wipe a tear from my cheek. <laughs> that's beautiful. What's the lesson that's taken you the longest to learn? I mean, it's more of just, I'm trying to find, can constantly find that balance between what we spoke about earlier. How much of it is a responsibility? How much is it is fate? How much of it is endurance? And how much of it is, mm. I back off. I'm taking my hands off the wheel. How much, how much, how, how, how can the, I get to a place where the decision that's best for me selfishly is also the decision that's best for we yes. selflessly? And to quit making those two contradictions, to quit making those two feel like those have to be butting heads and that no, 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 actually, this is where they live. Let them cross over. That's not a that's not a shade of gray of compromise. That's a white light of all the colors of truth. And yeah. to trust that, um, because I do like to be in control. I do like to be in the know. I'm still working on. Okay, that's fine if you want to always be in the know, McConaughey. But let's make sure you're in the know about what you don't know. Yes, as well. So, um, you know, learning and redefining what vulnerability really means or humility, 
what it really means. The best definition I've heard of humility is, is, is admitting that you have more to learn. That definition, I can still maintain my confidence and sense of identity in. And I am, you know, again, a lot of times we say, oh, get rid of the ego. I disagree. No, don't get rid of the ego. You have to have identity. You have to have judgment or you have no identity. But it has to be balanced with a selflessness. But again, that arrogant prick I was talking about earlier, yeah. where I, my ego was maybe overly blown at times, I can look back and go, well, at least it got you in the ring to, to, to go learn. Yes. That you wouldn't have had the confidence maybe to go do it. So again, what's that mix uh, uh, of those two where, you know, I know, and I know that I don't know. <laughs> it's that, it's that, it's not a contradiction, you know, which I think we sometimes make it be. So working on not making those things contradictions and understanding the paradox. Um, and also, you know what, understanding context. Mm. I'm big on context. I can write you an email. You know, if I'm talking to you, you're going to see usually how I feel or what I mean. Mm. If, you know, like those stories early in the book, violent stories of a fight between my mom and dad. Well, the way I tell it, you saw the love and the humanity. But if you just wrote down the facts, yes, it's a horror story that you want to call the cops on. And you're probably going to think I've been in psychiatric <laughs> counsel for years, which I haven't. So context. Yeah, I always joke about it. It's like it's like the way people use emojis. I can write you something in jest where I've got a week in it and I'm kind of giving you heck. But maybe you woke up this morning and your dog's sick and you received that and you're not in the mood for that. And you read what I wrote you and you're like, that son of a bitch. Mm. What who the hell do you think he is talking to me like that? Because I didn't put the the wink emoji at the end or I didn't go, hey, you know, love you or whatever or ha ha. You know what I mean? So context. And we got to remember that that not everyone, we don't know where they just came from. Yes. We don't know where everyone else just came from um, uh, in their own life. And just respect that, 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 that people may not be in the same mood as you. It's mm. that loophole in the golden rule. I yeah. always tell my mom this, the loophole of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, that's great. But just remember, not everybody wants to do what you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And what is a life of greatness to you? A life of a continued effort to try and just be a little bit better daily. Yes. Thank you for sharing your story, Matthew McConaughey. Talking to you today has been an absolute green light for me. So thank you. Sarah, I thoroughly enjoyed it and look forward to talking to you next time and would love to. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind the scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.